Thank you. You may be seated. Which of them will love him most? That question is the outgrowth of a story that Jesus told to Simon the Pharisee that's recorded in the seventh division of the gospel according to Luke, verses 41 and 42. This man, Simon, had invited Jesus to a dinner party. Why? We're not told. But as we read between the lines of the story, we're forced to the conclusion that Simon's motive was something other than friendliness. I think as much as anything, Simon was motivated by curiosity. Because there were arresting and persistent rumors that were floating around the country with regard to this Jesus of Nazareth. Some were saying that this man, Jesus, was possessed with a power that was far beyond the human. Some were certain that He was a prophet. Some were sure that He was the greatest of the prophets. But Simon, this skeptical Pharisee, was not, he was not at all sure that there was any truthfulness to these amazing rumors. But they made him curious. So he was open-minded enough that he was willing to have a look at Jesus for himself. And to have an up-close and personal look, Simon invited Jesus to dinner. Well, while the dinner was taking place, something happened that made it possible for this watchful Simon to reach a very definite conclusion with regard to his guest. A woman showed up. A woman of a notoriously bad character. A woman whose reputation was of the very worst appeared on the scene. And this woman dared to approach Jesus. And she took liberties with Him that seemed altogether shocking to Simon and to his other guests. You see, this woman had brought with her these spoils and instruments, some of, a part of the spoils and instruments of her sinful adornment, and she brought it to devote it to the service of Jesus. She has come there for the express purpose of anointing the feet of Jesus with perfume. And yet, as she approached the Lord, before she can accomplish her purpose, before she can open her cruise of ointment, her heart opens. And hot tears flow down her cheeks and they flow upon the feet of Jesus and they inflict an indignity for she had meant to have an honor for Him. And she has no towel. She has nothing there to repair the fault that she's guilty of. She would not venture to take her poor garment and use it to take care of it. But with a touch, she reaches up and she loosens her long hair. And with the ingenuity 
and with the self-abasement of love, she uses her hair for a towel. And then, gathering confidence from her reception, and it's been carried further than she had meant, this woman actually ventures to lay her sinful lips on the feet of Jesus. As if asking for pardon for the tears that had come. The only lips except for those of the traitor that are recorded as ever having touched Jesus. And it's then that she dares to pour upon Jesus the expensive perfume that she's brought. Her only wealth. And Simon, the Pharisee that's hosting this dinner party, Simon is shocked beyond measure at the scene that he's seeing there at his respectable table. What will he say? Does he have a heart? Simon's scandalized. Now, sitting where we sit, looking back over the centuries, it's easy for us to point the finger of scorn at Simon, isn't it? The tragedy is I'm not so sure that we would have carried things off much better or any better than he did in a similar situation. It's disgraceful. Here is Jesus practically, obviously, welcoming the attention of this woman, this sinful woman of the gutter. And Jesus is either doing it knowing her for what she is, or He's ignorant of her real character. So Simon in his mind begins to doubt whether a man with, who would tolerate such familiarity from a woman of the street like this could a man that tolerates this kind of familiarity from this sinful woman actually be a prophet? Or whether he could even be a good man? Because you see, Simon's view of goodness is that goodness shows itself by keeping utterly aloof from those that aren't good. Simon's righteousness is the kind of righteousness that gathers its own robes around him and shoves this poor sinner back into the filth of the gutter. If Jesus is allowing this woman to touch him because he doesn't know what kind of woman she is, and Simon is willing to take the charitable view and credit the conduct of Jesus to ignorance. Well, if he's letting her touch him because he doesn't know what kind of woman he is, she is because he's ignorant, well, then he's certainly no prophet. Because one true mark of a prophet is the ability to read someone's character. 
So Simon reasons account for the conduct of Jesus however he might do it, he comes to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is not a prophet. But Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's mind. And if he can't read the character of this woman, he can certainly read the character of his host. And if he shows him, he says, Simon... He's basically saying, Simon, if I don't know this woman for what you, she is, I know you for what you are. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, okay, tell me. Jesus said, well, there was a certain creditor that had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other 50 And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, Simon, which of them will love him the most? That's the question Jesus wants the answer to. Which of them's going to love him the most? Why does Jesus ask that question? Because, folks, that question is fundamental. And Jesus always goes to the very heart of the matter. Love is the supreme essential. Love is the test of the vitality and genuineness of our Christianity. Love marks the difference between the spiritual giant and the spiritual dwarf. Love marks the difference between a moral victory and a moral failure. Love marks the difference between life and death. And that ought to be obvious to the most casual reader of the New Testament. Someone asked Jesus one time, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. And then the second he said is like unto it, thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. And it was then that Jesus pointed out the distinguishing mark of a true disciple. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John thirteen thirty five. Love is so important that nothing really arrives that is not motivated by it. Paul makes it plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me Nothing. Eloquence has no music, and knowledge is sheer futility without love. Faith that's great enough to make the hills into toys and fling mountains into the sea. Faith that's giving even to the point of laying down one's life. All of it fails to arrive except at the hands of love. The greatest of treasures 
are pitifully and woefully inadequate without love. And yet the smallest things take on an immeasurable value at the transforming touch of love. When that widow cast her two mites into the treasury, it was a trifling sum, was it not? But the love that motivated her to do it transformed those two mites into an inexhaustible fountain of gold. The lowliest wildflowers of the field that are given in love are worth more than countless bouquets of roses that are presented from sordid and selfish motives. How do we have it? How do we get it? At what end of the rainbow do we find this pot of gold called love? Jesus doesn't leave us in doubt to answer that question. Actually, if we study what Jesus has to say, Jesus tells us that Love is the effect of a certain cause. He tells us love is the stream that flows from a certain fountain. Are you listening? Love is born of forgiveness. Love is the heart's natural response to the forgiving love of God. We love Him because He first loved us. The measure of our love is the measure of our sense of forgiveness. What did he say to Simon? Simon, which one is going to love him the most? And Simon gives him the right answer. He said, the one that he forgave the most. That's true. Only on the assumption that both of those debtors are possessed of an equal insensitivity. Guess what? That's not always the way it is. There are some folks upon whom any sense of debt weighs heavily. There are folks that lie awake at night wondering if they're going to be able to meet their obligations. And for them, a debt that's unpaid is a promise that they've got to keep. And for those people, for those for whom a promise made is a debt unpaid, that unpaid debt gives them no rest. But then there are others upon whom debt does not weigh that heavily. There are others to whom debt is no burden. Their their only worry is how can I make my debt larger? It was actually Thackeray who said, Nobody spends money quite so readily as those who are hopelessly and comfortably in debt. Maybe that's why Congress throws away such billions and billions of dollars all the time. There are even those who think that the world owes them a living. For them, society is a grab bag of things where they just grab all they can grab and that's a group that seems to be growing in our world. And so you see, to forgive someone of a debt of which they are not conscious or to forgive them of a debt that they have no intention of paying 
it wouldn't be regarded by that person as any great favor. Simon, the Pharisee, was just such a person. He owed nothing to God. He owed nothing to man. So the offer of forgiveness left Simon quite cold. Simon feels no more need to be forgiven of God than God needs to be forgiven by him. To think of someone like Simon as loving God, beloved, that's to think of an impossibility. But just as it's impossible for the unforgiven to love God, it's also possible for the forgiven to fail to love Him. Love follows forgiveness just as naturally as night follows the day. For instance, here's this woman. One day, perhaps this woman saw a crowd in the street. She drew near, not so much to hear the one who was speaking as to perhaps ply her filthy trade. But the speaker that day was Jesus. The crowd was assembled to hear Jesus, and she was caught under the spell of Jesus of Nazareth. And against the white background of the stainless personality of Jesus, she caught a vision that day of her own moral ugliness. And the vision of the spiritual beauty of Jesus gave that woman a vision of her own spiritual possibilities. She no longer saw herself for what she was. She saw herself for what she could become. And when Jesus said, Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven She knew that she was loved. She knew that she was trusted. And greatly forgiven, she greatly loved. Love is measured by our forgiveness. Both of these, Simon and this sinful woman, they were both in debt. So are we. So are you. So am I. There's no difference. Paul said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we're not all equally in debt. That's undeniably true. One of these was ten times as ugly and guilty as the other. Now, you know, Jesus made the comparison of one being ten times more guilty than the other one. Which one had the greater guilt? Jesus doesn't tell us. Did the woman have the greater guilt or did Simon the Pharisee have the greater guilt? The answer to that question, folks, is only known to God. Now, most times the way we look at things, usually the greater guilt is attributed to this woman. But, you know, I don't always see things the usual way. I'm more of the opinion that Simon the Pharisee was the one that had the greater debt. It's true, Simon was a decent man. 
He was also cold, hard, harsh, full of pride and spiritual snobbery. Read this book. Jesus seems to look with harsher eyes upon sins of disposition than He does sins of passion. But whatever the degree of guilt and who was the guiltiest of the two, both of them were guilty. So are we, you and me. The entire Bible is written upon the assumption that we're all guilty. Now, I'm aware of something. I'm aware that I live in the 21st century. And that concept of all of us having sinned and come short of the glory of God is a little bit out of date. To a great degree, it does not fit in with our 21st century mentality and way of thinking. Because in our modern world, people just can't seem to get very disturbed about the matter of sin. Because we've lost, to a great degree, we've lost our moral compass. We've lost our moral sensitivity. For To a great degree, we've thrown our standards in the garbage can. And for a lot of folks today, there's nothing that's wrong and nothing that's sinful. And even assuming our conduct is conduct of a base nature, We're not to blame for our conduct and what we do. Our environment might have caused it or it might be due to heredity, but it's not my fault. There are very few folks in our world today that can say with conviction and will say with conviction, I have sinned. And if Paul's declaration that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, if that leaves us untouched, there are still those who give assent to the fact that we have come short of the glory of God. I think a lot of us are aware of our failure to arrive. I think a lot of people have looked longingly to the heights and they haven't gotten there. I think a lot of us have looked to the heights and we're not doing the splendid things for God we once hoped we would do for God. If we're honest. All of us who are serious minded, we have to realize that we're not doing as much for the Lord as we could. And yet, oftentimes, our positive wrongdoing leaves us without a sense of shame. And yet we have to realize what we do for the Lord is often a fraction of what it might be or a fraction of even what it should be. Both of the people in this story, Simon and this woman, they were both in debt and they were unable to pay. They were paupers. They were equally penniless. They were bankrupt. 
But when they could not pay, the debt was forgiven. The debt was canceled. Forgiveness is more than giving up the right to punishment. Forgiveness is restoring one to a relationship. When we give our lives to Christ, when we make Jesus the Lord and Master of our lives, God forgives us our transgressions and He restores us to a right relationship. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life today, right now, He is not Lord and Master at all in your life. If you need to make changes, it's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.